Hey guys, let me be the first to introduce you to the House of Mario Encore. If you're listening to this at the start of the episode, then you're listening to the free version of the first episode, which will give you an idea of what we plan to do with this podcast. Typically, it's going to be a solo podcasting affair where Drew and I can sort of just put out our opinions on little stuff that's regarded Nintendo in the past, present, future, wherever it may be. But in terms of actually accessing it, it's going to be available on the $1 tier on our Patreon. That's not to say that this content won't be released to the public in the future, because it possibly could be, but for now you can find it at the $1 tier on patreon.com forward slash idruby. Drew and I have been at it for about two and a half years at this point, and we really, really like making content for you guys. Uh, Traditionally, we've had the Cracking Furfies podcast at the $1 tier as well, and that will remain the same, but this will be an extra addition in case you want more House of Mario content. Nothing will change from the regular schedule, we'll still have our general banter on the House of Mario, and we'll talk about the latest stuff there. This is kind of just a solo project, I guess, for the both of us, where we can work on our own ideas. So if this taste tester episode gets you intrigued, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash idruby to donate to the $1 tier and you'll unlock Cracking Furfies, the House of Mario Encore, and a whole lot more for your buck. Thank you very much for supporting us in past, present, future, whatever it may be. We really appreciate you guys and we hope that you like this enough to maybe consider having a look. Now without further ado, on to the episode. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the House of Mario Encore. I'm your host today, Bryce DeWitt. I don't have a blurb for this one. I think that's, uh, you know, sort of in the works at the moment, but we'll figure something out. This is the very first episode of Encore, so we've had solo podcasting experiences before where Drew's sort of reported on the Switch Lite and stuff like that during times where we can't get together and, uh, you know, we need to push some content out. But... Uh, this is a new project for us that is Patreon exclusive for the most part. This first episode will be released free, but you would have heard that by now. And hopefully it gives you a taste tester of what's to come in terms of this podcast. Everything that is the House of Mario will remain the same. And I'm sure we'll talk about these subjects at some point for people to listen to. Maybe not in the same depth in the solo way, but uh, yeah. So welcome to the first episode. So I had three topics that I wanted to work through today, Uh, but obviously I could only pick one to sort of fit the spectrum um, of, you know, anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour. So uh, for me to cover something of these subjects, it's sort of, you know, it's a bit time consuming in that respect. I really, really want to talk about all three of these things, so I probably will, but I decided the first one today would probably focus on Rareware, what that company meant for Nintendo and what it meant for people playing their games and, you know, their downfall to this day because obviously they're not doing much anymore, which is uh, really upsetting. Um, But Rareware has always had uh, a fond part of me that really loved all their stuff from Anywhere from the Super Nintendo all the way up until the GameCube where they stopped developing for Nintendo, the Game Boy Advance and GameCube era sort of thing. And I guess with the release of Banjo and Smash, it really prompted me to remember all these rare games that I just love so much. And to this day, I 
still play every now and then when I need a refresher. So I guess we'll start off with a little bit of history, at least from my perspective of where Rare really went right. Uh, obviously, they've developed a ton of games um, from all the way on the NES forward, uh, I think even further back than that. Um, but let's jump into it around an era that everybody remembers who was a big Nintendo fan at the time. It was definitely Donkey Kong Country 1, 2, and 3. So Donkey Kong Country in general, I think, has a place in many people's hearts as the best Donkey Kong games. Um, They really did a huge thing in creating what would be Nintendo's premier Donkey Kong game. Uh, Obviously, back in the day, going back, Donkey Kong was typically seen as an enemy. So him having his own sort of base was never really a thing. Much like how Bowser is for the most part, I suppose. He was the original Mario bad guy, you know. Uh, He captured Pauline, he went up the skyscraper or whatever her name was at the time, I can't remember. Back when he was called Jumpman, anyway. Uh, So, Donkey Kong Country really introduced a world of characters for Donkey Kong, whether that be King K. Rule or, you know, the Kremlings and etc, etc. And everybody fondly remembers it as the first really huge rareware title that just blew everything out of the water. Uh, I don't think anybody that you talk to this day who's played Donkey Kong Country could ever say, well, hey, that was a shit game. It was an absolutely fantastic experience that, uh, you know, spawned two more sequels on the console, which is absolutely incredible. And this was, you know, the beginning of Rare's golden age. They had a huge uh, amount of years really killing the market in terms of what they were providing. Donkey Kong Country was an absolutely phenomenal gem on the SNES. Uh, Fond memories of that game really come down to being able to switch between the Kongs in all the different games and collecting all the bananas and seeing that banana horde like right at the end of the first one. Uh, King K. Rule was obviously also a very good villain that's been really held up to this taste. So much, in fact, that Nintendo fought for him to be in Smash. Well, Sakurai did anyway fought for him to be in Smash, and, you know, here he is now, like, he could play King K. Rool in Smash, he's back on Nintendo, it's crazy, and that's a rare, 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 where, rather, asset. I never expected King K. Rool to sort of come back, which was, you know, mainly because they were in limbo, they were lost assets, they were rare assets, they might have belonged in the Donkey Kong universe, but... Because Rare made them, they weren't Nintendo properties. And so, once Nintendo had lost partnership with Rare after Microsoft buying them out, um, we were pretty certain that these characters were just gone and we were never going to see them again. Uh, These games went through a lot of strife, sort of trying to get out on Nintendo consoles in the future. Uh, During the GBA, they had a period where they were trying to release them out on that just before the Microsoft takeover happened and I think they got two of the Donkey Kong countries out they didn't bother with the third I don't think uh it's usually the one that's held up as the worst anyway I suppose but 
going forward trying to get them on the virtual console and stuff like that was literally nigh impossible uh at the time microsoft had a different president i can't remember his name right now because i've tried to erase him completely from my memory but he went off he went off to uh manage zynga and crash that as well so that just shows you how good of a ceo he was um and he was very uh, typical about not letting go of his assets and really standing his ground, especially during the Xbox 360 era where, you know, sort of everything was strong and he didn't really want to shake hands with anyone. Uh, obviously, that's changed nowadays because we have Phil Spencer and he's an absolutely remarkable uh, CEO of uh, the Xbox Corporation sort of thing. Microsoft uh, Microsoft Games, I believe. Uh so much that he interacted with Reggie and the rest of the team at NOA and sort of figured something out. They managed to get uh, Donkey Kong 64 back on and stuff like that. And it was, uh, yeah, good. But the games that suffered most were the Donkey Kong Country games. Trying to get them back on a relative console in the future was nigh impossible. And it's such a shame that it suffered hard for so long because Donkey Kong Country was a hallmark for the SNES. The game was beautiful. All three of them were absolutely beautiful. They were absolutely stellar platformers and Rare really know how to work with the hardware, which is something that you can't say for every developer nowadays. Obviously, games are a lot more advanced now and that always sort of... uh draws it out and makes it harder for people to develop games and it's not any fault of theirs of course because at the end of the day gaming is evolving and it has been evolving ever since its inception uh we've gone from text-based ms-dos games all the ways up to now you know it's absolutely phenomenal the, the things people are doing now but uh in terms of perfection uh donkey kong country was held as that in uh many people's eyes it was absolutely crazy like it's it's not a time that i played donkey kong country back when it was released because at the time you know i was i was probably two years old um i can't remember exactly i think um let's see donkey kong country 1994 i was one when that game was released but uh Obviously, the SNES persisted over a couple of years, and I got my hands on it when I was a little bit older, but I never owned an SNES myself. Um, I went back and finished these games for their reputation as being Rare's absolute gem projects. These games were fantastic. Um, regular listener of the show, Jamie Penning, he has a huge penchant for, Did- uh, for Diddy Kong- Diddy's Conquest. Always have to correct myself when saying that because (laughs) it's so confusing but um it just shows that there are people that still hold on to these games and think wow these these were absolutely classics and uh everything about donkey kong country in that regard was amazing whether it was just the standard platforming or using barrel cannons or even even the minecart sections weren't that bad. And for on-rails sections in games, like a lot of people sort of despise them, but even they were fine. And the underwater sections, even they weren't too bad, you know? Uh, something that people absolutely hated when the 3D space come to gaming, uh, the water sections. Um, people don't hate them <laughs> hate them in Donkey Kong Country. 
not in the same way that they did Sonic, where it was frustrating to platform out the water before you run out of air. Um, but maybe I'm not the best person to talk about Donkey Kong Country in that regard, I guess. I hold fond memories of it from when I actually did play it, but to be one of those lucky people that got to play this game at release, I can't imagine the awe-inspiring that it was. Um, I'm so glad that Donkey Kong was taken by Rare and made into something absolutely beautiful, and nowadays, you know, he thrives. Uh, Donkey Kong Country Returns are beautiful games. They're not as highly regarded held, but... Uh, it's good to see Donkey Kong back in the saddle, and we have Rare to thank for that. It's a absolutely amazing sort of experience seeing Donkey Kong go from enemy all the way up to his own character and have his own sort of mini-franchise out of it, and that's absolutely incredible. Uh, I guess the next thing we should probably talk about before we move up the rail uh, is Battletoads, which is known as one of the hardest games in existence and is getting a new game soon which is uh, awesome. Uh, Battletoads was known for being increasingly difficult. Uh, as games were made at the time, uh, a, lot of, a lot of games held a lot of artificial difficulty in order to prolong how long they lasted, because obviously, nowadays you can watch people speedrun uh, the original Mario Bros. in 5 minutes and 12 seconds. Uh People have gotten to that point where they've figured it out. They they get it. They know how to sort of maximize their time and do everything correctly. And back in the day when they were released, they didn't want people to do that. Because at the end of the day, games were and have never been very cheap on release. Uh, so Battletoads sort of embodied that sense of difficulty uh, and it was an amazing co-op beat-em-up, to be sure, but it was one of those games as well that if you weren't ready for the difficulty, it was going to kick your ass every time. Um, it spawned many versions uh, all the way up to... Uh, what was it? The Game Gear. Yeah. So, this technically become bef- come before Donkey Kong Country. Um, but I guess the thing with Battletoads as well is that I never touched it until Rare Replay, uh, simply because it was one of those games that was sort of on the back end. Everybody remembers Battletoads, but how many people actually played Battletoads? That's the thing. Um, there was huge, huge demand for a... Uh, re-release or remake or of some kind, which we're finally getting now, which is fantastic. But uh, I wonder if it'll hold and retain the same difficulty that Battletoads is known for. It was just one of those games that just absolutely <laughs> destroyed people's people's uh, sense of frustration, made them go a bit loopy. <laughs> so, yeah, I suppose that's all I've really got to say about Battletoads, unfortunately. Uh, I wish I'd maybe gone and finished it but as one of those people that found it artificially difficult and a little bit frustrating I played it a few times put it down never played it again it's uh one of those sort of like more 3d space beat-em-ups uh from from the era akin to games like turtles in time I guess where they're great to jump in and co-op with people but god they're frustrating games uh, but it's still hallmarked in 
some of Rhea's crowning achievements today, which is incredible. And uh, got to thank her for that much, I guess. Uh, moving on, though, we're looking at the Killer Instinct series, which uh, holds a lot of weight in terms of a fighting game through history, but nowadays doesn't really. They had a, a new version of Killer Instinct come out in more recent years, but it never really picked up quite the steam that uh, the underground community had for Killer Instinct. I feel like uh, Killer Instinct was sort of like their response to, hey, we can do a Mortal Kombat type of game too, sort of thing. And it never got uh, held as highly regarded. That's that's what I was looking for. Um, but it definitely had its underground cult following, which is absolutely fantastic. And I'm glad that, again, it got a modern version to it. Uh, it's just a shame that it doesn't really hold the same weight as it did. You got uh, the Arbiter in there from Halo and stuff like that, which was cool to see that little Microsoft sort of turnover once they decided, hey, Rare, make a new Killer Instinct. Um, and I suppose it worked out for a bit. They had a fr- they have a free version on Xbox if you want to go try the new Killer Instinct, which is, you know, awesome. Um, I actually think... That re that uh, reboot, I guess we'll call it, came with an original version on the disc of the original Killer Instinct to play. Could be wrong, but something sparks to memory in that. Uh, with fighting series, a lot of it was delegated in the past to stuff like Street Fighter or Fatal Fury, um, and it couldn't really find its place to shine and soar, but. For its underground community and what it has, Killer Instinct definitely was a rare title to hold and try and play, and it uh, it's a shame it didn't find the same ex- uh, same success. But it's regardless one of one of the games in Rare's back catalogue that when you hear about it, you're like, oh yeah, that game definitely existed, huh? Uh, there was a bunch of these games all the way up until uh, Killer Instinct 2, which um, I think there was two versions prior to that on uh, of, of the first game released on different consoles. So, I can't remember. Maybe it was three. No, two. One in arcade, uh, one on the Game Boy, and one on the Super Nintendo. So there was always a way to play Killer Instinct, whether you're on the go or on the TV at home with friends. So, yeah, Killer Instinct, everybody. Um, so now we're moving on more into an era which I am very far familiar with. Uh, during a during Rare's real golden era was the N64. Uh, there were so many rare games to behold on on the 64 that just absolutely killed it in terms of recognizable value and money's worth and etc. Uh, a lot of them I hold very closely to this day. Uh, when I think of the Nintendo 64, Rare is what I think of. I love Rare games on the Nintendo 64. Obviously, Super Mario 64, Mario Kart, Ocarina of Time. They are all things that I'm like, ah, yes, my childhood. But 
with rare games, it was it was one of those things where you looked at them and you when you saw the rare symbol on the product, you know you were buying quality. Most rare games that turned up on the Nintendo 64, if not all of them, were really solid, unless they were sort of just super offshoot. But uh, let's start off with their uh, first foray, which was Kill Instinct Gold, which I don't know that much about. Um, I believe it is just the arcade version of Killer Instinct, but made for the 64. Uh, as far as it goes, I don't see this game anywhere, uh, whether it be in retro stores or whatever the like. I'm not I'm not 100% sure how rare it is. Uh, <laughs> rare. Anyway. Uh, but, obviously, if you wanted to play a classic version of Killer Instinct from... Uh, the golden era, but on a more modern console, it was there. So, there was that. Uh, Blast Corps is something I see everywhere in terms of retro game stores. Uh, I've never actually played Blast Corps either, which is surprising because I see copies of it all the time. Um, it was... Uh, again, it was one of those games that was sort of just coming into the Nintendo 64 that's trying to figure out the hardware. It's not one that's mentioned much, uh, when it comes to Nintendo 64 games by Rare. Uh, whether I can really talk about it is a good question. I, I remember seeing um, people play it as a kid, but I never really held it in much, much interest. Uh, Blast Quartz was just an action game that sort of served as their testing grounds for the 3D space, I think. If I remember correctly. I could be completely wrong with this. Blast Corps was uh, sort of... Again, it's one of those games I see everywhere. But I've never had the chance to sort of get my hands on it and play it myself. Which is a shame, I suppose. But the one straight after that is one that changed the Nintendo 64 space forever. And it defined a genre for literally decades to come. Even to this day, much like Ocarina of Time really set the bar for open world exploration. GoldenEye, GoldenEye 007. Literally a movie license game by uh, Rare. Defined a shooter multiplayer genre of a generation. So GoldenEye 007 was the next game to be released and it was in the same year that it actually came out as Blast Corps. And this is probably why it got overshadowed so hard, to be completely honest with you. When you're talking about, and at the time, it was a first-person shooter, much like Doom. Everybody sort of appreciated games like Doom and Quake all the way since their inception on PC. But GoldenEye 007 defined the couch competition, uh, competitive rather shooter. There was everything to love about GoldenEye, whether you were playing it in single-player or whether you were playing it in multiplayer. It loosely followed the events of GoldenEye. It tried to hold to him pretty well. You can see Pierce Brosnan's really pixelated and meshed-up face in it. You've got the dialogue in there that sort of correlates with the movies and... Well, the movie. And... I think when it comes down to the end of it, there was a lot to love in the single player as well as the multiplayer. If you were playing the single player, you had a 
pretty decent experience all throughout. And then you had some weird uh, final levels with Aztec. And there was another one I can't remember. And Aztec was basically just a giant pyramid maze. And when I think of that, I think of... What was it? Uh, Lockjaw? Now, he had... um, they had Lockjaw, I believe. It was in, in the pyramid and he was a boss. And they also had a guy that was a mystic. He was really strange. He kept laughing, like, manically all the time. Uh, and sort of a weird way to end off that game with those two bonus levels. But every level of GoldenEye 007 had a secret objective that would completely, completely change how the game would play out. Uh, and how your mission rating would uh, settle, I guess. So, for example, in the first level, a lot of people just sort of went, oh, yeah, we'll go through the level, we'll jump off the dam, we're done. Uh, But in reality, there was a whole other section to that level where you would have to fight through the dam and blow up a console, and then you would have to jump off of it, and that would be counted as completing your mission objectives. It was a really good way to sort of toss up the game gameplay from just uh, bam, bam, shoot. It gave you an alternate objective for the most part, which is something that really heralded what that game was. Because a lot of a lot of kids at the time, uh, especially ones that I knew, were kind of just like, "Oh, I'm always getting this failed mission objective. What do I have to do to get?" get through that it's like oh well there's this secret path to inside the dam you go inside the tan- dam you shoot a bunch of people you blow up the console and then you can go jump off the thing and then it's completely complete hooray and for doing stuff like this you would be rewarded uh with cheat codes or multiplayer characters and such and anybody that picks odd job is an asshole but anyway uh that would translate to whether you played single player or whether you played multiplayer, cheats were available as long as you sort of turned them on in the pre-menu. And there was anything from infinite ammo to DK head mode uh, to invincibility, all all that nice stuff. Uh, I remember there was a prominent glitch uh, where if you pressed, pressed the button at the same time as opening the menu, you could dual wield any gun in the game. So that could be the Moonraker, the rocket launchers, like literally anything that you really should not be able to dual wield. Uh, you could dual wield it. It was absolutely crazy. Uh, I still remember this game fondly as the game that made my grandmother throw up. Uh, I borrowed it off a friend at the time because I didn't own it and we were playing it together and the blood over screen uh, when you die would, uh, made her throw up. It literally made her nauseous and she had to go puke. She'd never seen such a thing in her life. Mind you, she'd never said, no, you can't play this. You can't play that. Uh, she always let me go through it anyway. I think she understood that I was a responsible enough kid to understand what that meant. Um, but I guess Goldeneye was a huge giant for that genre because not only did it really sort of signify that couch that couch play but it also created every single idiotism that now exists in shooters whether it be uh how a character moves how the camera moves or how guns operate it's an 
absolute gem of a game. And if you've never played GoldenEye 007 uh, on the 64, then there's options to sort of play it in some sort of degree nowadays, whether that be the remakes or whatever. But nothing will ever hold a candle to that original experience that was GoldenEye 007. And I'm glad that I d- that is one of the games I did get to play near its release. Uh, for a movie tie-in game, it was one of the best. And I can never never speak ill about it. But we'll move on to Diddy Kong Racing, which was the next in their lineup. Uh Oh no, they did do they did Donkey Kong Land 3 on the game the Game Boy as well. Okay, so they did actually do something for the Game Boy that wasn't Conker's Pocket Tales. Okay, cool. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I'm going off on on a tangent. Uh so Diddy Kong Racing. Uh, Diddy Kong Racing was a game that was sort of in layer of like the Mario Kart hype sort of thing. And something you'll notice throughout Rare's history is that they have sort of a counter-argument to games that, in my opinion, they feel more fleshed out. So Diddy Kong Racing was definitely one of those games. We obviously had Mario Kart 64. That was by in no means in doubt the best way to play a kart racer with your friends. Um, and just have a good time. But Diddy Kong Racing was much more set up for a solo play experience, and it turned kart racing into an adventure. You had three vehicles to choose from. You had planes, hovercrafts, and carts. Uh, It had a story sort of centered around it, and plenty of challenges to do. You had boss fights, even, where you would have to race particular bosses up a mountain, or uh, through a canyon, or whatever it may be. And the ultimate goal at the end of the day was to complete as many of the time trials, get as many of the gold medallions as you could and come up against uh, the final boss whose name escapes me. Also, I really need to go back and play all these games. Um, and that, that, that last boss was hard. Like there was a boss earlier on in the game where you had to race a dinosaur up the mountain. That thing was hard enough, but this guy was an ass. He was literally difficult for everybody that ever tackled him uh, first time round. Um, it was definitely one of the best racing game experiences I've had, uh, whether it be arcade or realistic or otherwise, uh, in my history, because it did really sort of set the bar of, hey, you know, you could turn kart racing into something that's not just, hey, pick a, pick a stage, go for a race, who wins Yahoo. Uh, there was a whole overworld to explore. You know, you, you could race in any vehicle you wished on pretty much every track. They had minor objectives, which you could complete and work on in your own time, and it would grant you access to more things, whether it be more bosses, more time trials, etc. Until eventually you sort of hit the end and you were done. It was also uh, an introduction of Diddy Kong's sort of lineup of characters, whether it be um, Conker, Tip Top, even Banjo. Um, So a lot of people remember Tip Top as the one character that was cameoed in every other game uh, that Rare made. But Banjo and Conker were ones to get their their own titles at the end of the day and we'll talk about them in a second but I just want to appreciate everything that Diddy Kong Racing was it was sort of like their platform for hey 
here's these characters. You'll probably see them in other games, you know? And it happened. Uh, Diddy Kong Racing got a remake on the DS and it was an absolutely brilliant way to play it. Um, probably not as grandiose as playing playing it on the TV, you know, on the Nintendo 64 with the crappy controllers, let's be real. But it was definitely something that stuck close to me anyway. So we're going to move on and try to quick fire a few of these because I've talked about them so much before, um, but I do want to sing their praises while I can. So first up, Banjo-Kazooie. Banjo-Kazooie is undoubtedly, and I say this with my own opinion in mind, I understand that a lot of people will think differently, but to me, it is undoubtedly the best 3D platformer on the console. A lot of people would argue that with Mario 64. Obviously, Mario 64 was very fluid and there's so much to that game to be loved. But Banjo set a degree of storytelling, a drive to complete a goal. It also powerhoused what you could do with a Nintendo 64 controller uh, through all sorts of special moves and etc. It was incredibly charming all the way throughout the game. Banjo-Kazooie is an absolute marvel. There's something to discover for somebody that has never played a Banjo game before. You can go play a Banjo... You can go play Banjo-Kazooie and you'll discover something um, that Mario 64 did not have. Uh, Mario 64 was the tightest platformer on the console. Nintendo obviously knew how to work with their hardware. Wall jumping, jump, uh, jump diving and... All that stuff, all the mobility stuff in Mario 64 was absolutely brilliant and it made for a really fast-paced game if you knew how to play it. But Banjo was an experience. When you played a Banjo-Kazooie game, there was always something around the corner that was either going to insult you or help you or whatever it may be. There was a huge cast of characters in Banjo, whether it be Boggy and his family, Mumbo-Jumbo, Bottles, uh, the ants and... Even the ants and the ant hill had personality... The you had those creepy snowmen with the top hats in Freezy Peak. Man, there's just so much to love in Banjo Kazooie. I say that with every bit of my being. I go back and play this game uh, once every couple years just for the sake of it. Uh, there are people that play that game for speed runs, obviously. And they absolutely smash it down to, you know, two, three hours worth of time. I think the quickest time I've gotten to 100% is about eight hours. Banjo and Kazooie is something that will always hold close to my heart. as something that took me four years to complete as a kid. Uh, not because of the, ab- like, a tribal difficulty, but because it's the game that I always wanted to play from the start over and over again. Like, I'd get to a certain point and I'd be like... Okay, I'll put it down for a bit, and then I come back to it, and I'll be like, "Yeah, I, I feel like going through the start again." I've finished that game seven or eight times now. Through my history, I must have restarted at about fifty. There's something magical about experiencing the world of Banjo Kazooie from its beginning. It's a story that builds up all the way to the end. It has an epic climax. 
it's really a game you don't want to miss. And you can play it on modern consoles. You can play it on Xbox, Xbox One, whatever it may be. Praying for a Switch version, but we'll see. Hopefully a sort of remastered deal would come out, and that'd be absolutely incredible. So let's move on to Perfect Dark, which was Rare's non-movie tie-in solution to a first-person shooter. A lot of people know Joanna Dark as a character. It's also a game I never played, which is very, very strange for me. Perfect Dark was one of those games you could not find in abundance in comparison to GoldenEye, mainly because GoldenEye really set a standard, I feel. Uh, obviously, with re- uh, Rare Replay Collection, you can play this game, and I have every intention to play it, but it's just one of those games that I need I need to set aside time for, and I know I do, but I'm kind of just like, it can hold, I've got too much to play at the moment, but it's definitely on my list of things to play. Um, but Perfect Dark was that shooter that had to trail behind the literal best shooter at the time. Uh, there was a unique story there um, through the perspective of Joanna Dark. And as you move forward, obviously, there's a whole whole unique premise to it in comparison to, hey, it's just a movie to, uh, tie-in title. But uh, Perfect Dark is held close by the people that see it. Uh, technically, a, it is technically a bit better in the technicality. God, I need to stop saying that word. But... It's better than GoldenEye in some aspects, and it's worse in some aspects. It's it, I can't remember if the first one had multiplayer, but Zero does, and I know Zero's did not hold up as well at all um, in terms of all the other multiplayer shooters sort of coming out at the time. But Perfect Dark did find its home in being one of those harder-to-find rare titles that was worth to pick up and play. Uh the list sort of goes on of all these knockouts and Perfect Dark is definitely on there. It's got its spot in Rare Replay. If you're ever interested in Perfect Dark, go pick it up and have a go. I know I'm going to. So next up, we'll talk about Banjo-Tooie real quick. Uh, Banjo-Tooie did not succeed as well as Banjo-Kazooie. What they tried to do with Banjo-Tooie was fairly reasonable. They tried to make a similar experience with a much harder impact on the console. And there was a lot. Uh, Arguably, there was a lot more content there than Banjo-Kazooie. But the difference between having a game that sort of introduces the series and having this sequel uh, that has a hell of a lot more content is the game... The first game runs a lot better in general. Banjo-Tooie has struggles with the hardware they really wanted to push it to its absolute limits and it does work for the most part but the only problem is is the frame drops and maybe some some elongated and not very good mini games like uh, mary canary's railway ride that thing was an absolute nightmare and it's ruined many 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 b buttons to this day uh but that's not to say that Banjo-Tooie was not a game worth experiencing. It was absolutely a game worth experiencing. It is absolutely chock full of rare history through uh, through characters and such and just little hints and references. It had a better story than Banjo because it sort of had more of a motive. Grunty wanted to get revenge. That was her thing. She wanted revenge for uh, for killing her. 
because, well, that's what you did. Spoiler alert. But it certainly was a much more grandiose game and there was a lot of multiple world tie-ins where you could do something in one world and it would affect another and that stuff was great. But it did ultimately lead to a longer experience and there was technical drawbacks that really sort of brought it down a notch. And it's unfortunate because Banjo-Tooie would have been an absolutely incredible sequel if it sort of just foregoed that. Mind you, if you play that on the Xbox 360 or Xbox One these days, it works perfectly fine. They've fixed all those frame issues and it is the absolute best way to play Banjo-Tooie. So if you're ever going to play Banjo-Tooie, the arcade version or the Rare Replay version is the absolute best way to play Banjo-Tooie. So just a little note for that one. Uh... So, let's talk about Conker's Bad Fur Day. This was their crown for their Nintendo 64 lineup. There's been many games through at that point where I'm sort of looking at them and I'm going, do I really want to talk about Mickey Speedway USA when I could be talking about Conker's Bad Fur Day? And no, I don't want to talk about them. I'd rather talk about Conker's Bad Fur Day because this game, this game was nuts. So, what Conker's Bad Fur Day did is it made an absolute cutesy game turned into a huge adult romp and a lot of people when they think of cartoons getting more adult they think of stuff like family guy or sort of more more raunchier episodes of the simpsons or american dad just anything done by seth you know just god even big mouth i suppose if you want to watch big mouth but conquers had no limit It was literally, you start the game off as a squirrel who is drunk at a bar and loses his way home. The game is filled with humor that holds no bars, uh, whether it be scat humor or sex jokes or swearing or whatever it may be. Everybody remembers the Big Mighty Pooh. But it also had tried to sort of test the bars of product placement and like completely sort of bound around it for example the first the first thing you see when you wake up as conquer in a new area is a scarecrow that really wants what was it mepsy backs no mepsy packs there you go just literally switched two letters around you got pepsi max he just really wants it uh, there was the whole game throughout is basically just a whole, Hey, here's a cultural reference of the time tie in. So you had stuff like the matrix sort of pop up or, you know, war based, uh, a war based shooting section, which was reminiscent of like all the war movies coming out at the time about Vietnam, world war two, all that sort of thing. It was certainly an experience to behold if you wanted to play a more adult rare game uh but its humor today especially if you're an adult probably doesn't hold up as well uh it's definitely there if you're into fart jokes i guess that's the best way to put it if you're into that sort of humor where you don't mind going ha ha look that cow's got diarrhea because you gave it laxatives then (laughs) conquer's bad fur day is probably for you uh i have played this game on both systems that it's available on. 
well, there's three technically with Rare Replay, but the 64 version and the Xbox version, Conker's Bad Fur Day Reloaded, live and reloaded. Uh, I actually picked that one up for 20 bucks because I'm like, I want to play Conker again. But unfortunately, if you are playing the Xbox version, it is censored. It is way more censored than the original one was for whatever reason. Uh, considering it was on a more adult platform, that's really a surprise. But regardless of how you play Conker's Bad Fur Day, it's still definitely an experience that just absolutely threw people out of the water. And considering the history of Conker, it was nuts. I believe the game was originally supposed to be Conker's 12 Tales... And it was originally supposed to be a more kidsy Banjo-Kazooie, which is sort of hard to say, I guess, because Banjo-Kazooie in itself is already sort of kidsy. But it was meant to be way more centered around kids. But I guess at the end of the day, they were kind of just like, you know what, why? Why are we doing that? I feel like Banjo-Kazooie sort of like, already serves that purpose. So they may conquer into this big, raunchy experience where... You know, you've got bees pollinating flowers or, you, you you know, Conker's looking for his his hot bunny girlfriend who just absolutely hates him for going out and getting drunk, but she's kidnapped and just... It's, it's really a weird game that has a lot of intricacies to it where you're sort of like, if I could sit down and deal with this potty humor, then I'm probably going to have a fun time. And it was. It was good. It was a really solid platformer. Uh, it held very similar stylistic choices to Banjo-Kazooie in terms of how you operate the game and how Conker moves and what you'll be doing. There's always an objective. There's always little side objectives you can do if you really feel like doing that. Uh, but it is definitely set around, hey, look, it's an old Hanna-Barbera cartoon with death, murder, poop, and sexual innuendo there is so much of it there uh but it's definitely a game worth looking at if you're into just real childish humor uh conquest bad fur day was their last game on the console and it sent it off well i think not for the fact that its humor was you know as as it was and it was a more adult game but it it in general was just a really solid game so this is where things get a little sad uh, and things get a little bit worse off for Rare. First off, we've got Star Fox Adventures. Uh, a lot of people hate this game and I can understand why people looking for a Star Fox game... I should mention this is on the GameCube. People looking for a Star Fox game uh, were not really getting it with Star Fox Adventures. They were getting a Zelda-like experience with some... Star Fox experience, which, I don't know, it kind of worked for me, I kind of liked how the game was sort of centred around a new story, a new way of looking at things for Star Fox, I like Star Fox, uh, I enjoy it, Lilac Wars was an absolute, like, pinnacle of my childhood and memory, but I feel like it was one of those games that was just unfortunate enough to not be the right fit when they were approached uh when they were approached by Nintendo they were developing a game called Ti- Dinosaur Planet which was essentially the same thing sort of in that retrospect but 
Nintendo said, hey, let's turn it into a Star Fox game. We'll make it work. We'll give it a go. And you know what? For me, it worked. Uh, It didn't work for a lot of people. I didn't play it all the way into the end either. It It does get a bit repetitive and it is a little bit all over the place. But if you're looking for a unique Star Fox story, it was definitely there. Um, it's just a shame that the way it played out was sort of, well, not Star Fox enough for people, and it ended up sort of bombing. It was not a very well highly regarded game. There was a lot of characters in there that you could pay attention to. Everybody hates Tricky. I don't think I need to go any any more about in about that. Everybody hates Tricky. He's an annoying little turd, and he's not fun, but combat was all right. Game was good. I like the staff. Uh, it's just a shame that the aerial sections were abysmal and not challenging and not fun, which should be the whole draw to a Star Fox game. Uh, so following up from that, we've got one last hurrah before it completely disappears from Nintendo systems uh, up until Diddy Kong Racing DS, which was, you know, several years later. And that was Banjo-Kazooie Grunty's Revenge. the Technically the third Banjo game that hardly anybody ever played. It's a game that I finished twice and it worked really well on the Game Boy Advance. It's crazy how you sort of look at Donkey Kong Country and you go, hey, this is a technical marvel. They've got some really cool shit going on in here the way the perspective sort of plays out. They've got like the Mode 7 type stuff. But Banjo... <laughs> Banjo-Kazooie Grunty's Revenge does a very similar thing, but turns it into a 3D space. Uh, it's not a very very mem- memorable Banjo game in terms of what the game entails or how the game is played, because obviously you've got a far loss, lot less buttons. Uh, which really sort of takes a drawback out of it, makes it a little bit harder. Uh, But if you haven't played Grunty's Revenge, there is an experience there for Banjo that you've probably never experienced yet. Um, And in my opinion, it's worth a play. There's other stuff down the line where they sort of worked on it, uh, worked on a little bit like uh, Banjo Pilot, as well, where, I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's a kart racer, but you're in planes. They use the premises from Diddy Kong Racing. Um, but Banjo Pile, uh, Banjo, Banjo-Kazooie Grunty's Revenge, rather, was probably the last Banjo-Kazooie game that was very serviceable for the Banjo fan before the game was, like, the series was gone. It, it was gone. Um, they've obviously had nuts and bolts after that, which is... Uh, again, a game that I didn't hate, but I understand why people hated it. It was not the Banjo experience people were looking for, and I absolutely agree. But, yeah, if you haven't tried Grunty's Revenge, I recommend it. I finished it twice. I think it's a great Game Boy Advance game. It really does its best to utilize the hardware to its absolute effectiveness, more so than um, how Banjo-Tooie did, I feel, because I feel like... This little, it's almost Diablo-esque in its view, um, really pushes the hardware to its absolute limit. So, I guess 
that pretty much covers Rare all the way from the SNES all the way up to the GameCube and the Game Boy Advance where they died. Uh, I wanted to talk about these games because I feel like there is something for everyone within Rare's library and they absolutely killed it during the SNES and the N64. Everything about Rare has stuck with me. I follow... I followed the creators of Banjo-Kazooie on Twitter. I have a huge appreciation for Grant Kirkhope, who has a massive sort of presence on Twitter, and I've always loved his sound design and his music, which, you know, if you've ever listened to Goldeneye or um, Banjo music, it's it's all his. He's an amazing dude who makes some really cool music and a lot of these former former employees have gone over and made Platonic games and they've made Ukulele and which also should be released now, Ukulele and uh, and the Impossible Lair. Um probably won't hold your attention as much as Banjo Kazooie will, and I think that's the opinion in most people's eyes. But that doesn't mean that uh Ukulele isn't also in itself a great game. Um, Rare is a valuable part of history for me in terms of gaming because when I think back on Rare I think of all these amazing games I think of their downfall during that time and now I'm sitting here even to this day after their acquisition by Microsoft and their failures with their IPs uh, thinking like Conker's gone Banjo's Sort of slowly seeping back. Uh, let's hope that they do something with all this hype from the Banjo and Smash. Um, but yeah, Conquer, Diddy Kong Racing disappeared. I f- completely forgot to talk about Donkey Kong 64, which was also an incredible game that sort of built on everything that Banjo was about, but with Donkey Kong. <laughs> God, I don't even know how I forgot to talk about that. Donkey Kong 64 was nuts, man. And Jet Force Gemini. God, all these rare games, dude. I had like this list that I'd written up in my head. And I thought, yeah, I think that about covers it. But then I completely forget about Donkey Kong 64. God, I am a fool. Um, Alright, last one for you. Donkey Kong 64. Donkey Kong 64 was incredible. If you have not played Donkey Kong 64, it's one of those games that utilized the expansion pack that uh, gave the Nintendo 64 more RAM. And deservedly so. Donkey Kong 64 is huge. It is the last Donkey Kong game, last major Donkey Kong game that they made. Uh, Multiple playable characters, fun and intriguing worlds, some shit systems in them, like color-coded bananas. That was was crap. But there was a huge way up to 100, I believe it was 102% completion. There was so much to do in Donkey Kong 64. And we did eventually get that back. We got that back on the Wii U Virtual Console, which is incredible because it allowed me to pick that game up again i idolized that game as a kid um as somebody who was a banjo fan at the time and had this experience but it was with donkey kong and oh my god i can't believe i forgot to talk about it i'm the worst guys uh anyway rare i really want to know what people think about this company so if you've listened to this episode then Please let me know on Twitter at IV Revan. Uh, I want your favorite rare memories. I want 
everything that you love about that company. I want your hopes and desires. I want to hear about everything rare. Rare is something that will always remain close to my heart. Uh, It's such a shame that they took such a downfall during the Xbox era when uh, the old Microsoft president was not utilizing their assets properly. Banjo-Kazooie nuts and bolts fell off. Uh, We had... I'm, I'm not even sure if the Killer Instinct remake was made by them. But then it got to the point where they just started making Kinect games and then that was it. That's all that Microsoft wanted them for during that time. Which has sort of prompted the company to have a massive fall from grace. I've only talked about the SNES all the way up to the GameCube here. But I want to tell you that ever since then... Uh, ever since their acquisition by Microsoft, they have only made about, I'd like to say about 15 games. And uh, when we're talking about 15 games, most of those are either Viva Pinata, which, not shitting on Viva Pinata, but yes, Viva Pinata, and Connect uh, games. The only other notable titles, obviously, in recent history are... Sea of Thieves and Battletoads, which, yeah, you know, they've only sort of just hit, hit, hit us now. The rest of the time, uh, they had a perfect arc follow-up. They had a rare replay, but they just vanished. They vanished from history, and they're a company that I love so much. And it's an absolute shame that it's come to this point and Rare's now longer, now no longer here. Uh, I'll always remember Rare fondly as that game, as that game company that gave me an immense amount of childhood memories. Uh, and I hope that one day we will see their brilliance sort of rise again. I don't think it'll happen, but, uh, and we see Banjo 3, maybe Banjo-Kazooie Remaster, uh, you know, get on that cameo that they never followed up on. They had cameo elements of power. Perfect Dark's still there as their own unique IP. Ugh. It's such a shame, guys. But regardless, leave those comments rare for me. I really want to hear them. And I guess I'll sign off with that. But I do just want to let you know that uh, thank you listening. Thank you. Thank you listening. Wow. Thank you for listening. To the House of Mari Encore, the first episode, all about Rare, uh, from the SNES all the way up to the GameCube. If you've enjoyed this episode, then uh, consider going over to the Patreon to listen to them as they come out. I believe we're doing them bi-weekly. Uh, they might not be as long as this one. This one is incredibly long. It took a lot longer than I thought it would. Um, for the $1 tier, you get two new podcasts that you can add to any player that has an RSS feed function. Uh, we love making content for you guys, but content like this is time taken out of our day. And we do really, really want to sort of market that Patreon a little bit, uh, because it helps us develop the show more. Uh, we really want to put any money that goes back into that Patreon, back into our shows, make the quality higher, get all the stuff that we need to make 
absolutely stellar content for you guys. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed doing this and I want to keep doing more. But <laughs> at the end of the day, right now, I'm supposed to be uh, out somewhere at dinner. So I'm going to be turning up late. So uh, that's the kind of situation we're in. Uh, we would love to get everything set up and nice for you guys so you can have the most optimal uh, House of Mario experience or Cracking Furfies experience or whatever you listen to us for. We really want to uh, build upon that and make that something you guys can be proud of uh, and that we can be proud of because it's been two and a half years and I would love to see that little brain of ours flourish. So thank you guys. We'll catch you next time. If you're interested in more, check out the Patreon, $1 tier. This episode is completely free, as long as you're happy to listen to the blurb at the start. Uh, but any future episodes will be on patreon.com forward slash Thanks, guys.